We've been walking through Mark chapter 9, or the whole book of Mark rather, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and seeing this marvelous book and seeing what the Lord has, has communicated to us through, uh, through the testimony of Mark. And it's been, a, it's been a tremendous journey. We've seen so many incredible things. And today's text, as we look into this today, uh, we're going to be challenged on the need for faith. Last week we saw the, the transfiguration of Christ upon, uh, at, on that Mount of Transfiguration and the, the glory of God as it was revealed to the apostles there. And as they came down the mountain, they, they were in awe, and then they, Jesus was teaching them about the, the resurrection of Christ, and they were surprised by that. They, they weren't sure how to understand it, and they were talking amongst themselves, what does He mean by the resurrection from the dead? What's He talking about there? And Jesus had to patiently guide them and teach them about these things. And as they come down the mountain, they are going to encounter a scene of things unfolding, as almost almost a scene of chaos coming down the mountain as they return back to the ministry that is before them. So we are in Mark chapter 9, and I'm going to pick things up in verse 14 this morning. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up, to, ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw, the crowd, saw, saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's just consider the, the scene of this encounter for a moment, the, the things that are going on there as Jesus comes down the mountain. The, the Father, again, has just revealed the glory of, of the Son to the disciples, and Jesus has informed them that it, it, don't reveal what you have seen here until after I have risen from the dead. And they debate about that for a minute. They want to know what He's talking about there. And Jesus teaches them that the way of the Messiah is through suffering and death 
But death is not the end. There is a resurrection of the Son of Man. He will be risen again. And as they come down the mountain, they find the rest of the disciples there with a crowd, and uh, there's an argument ongoing with the scribes. Well, what could they be arguing about? What's, what's going on in that scene? That's going to be Jesus' first question in a moment. But in, in verse 15, it says the people, when they saw Jesus, it, they said they were amazed. Immediately, all the crowd, when they saw Him, they were greatly amazed. And we might ask the question, why were they amazed? What, what, what caused that amazement within them? Well, the text doesn't make that immediately clear to us. It's possible that Jesus had a like a residual glow about him from the transfiguration. We think of how Moses was up on the mountain when he be, beheld the glory of the Lord. His face radiated with that same glory as he came down the mountain. And, and we talked last week about how, in a way, Jesus was really almost like the new Moses standing before the disciples that day. And Jesus, God was, God was establishing Jesus as that new messianic figure, the prophet like Moses who was to come. And so it's possible that that is what's going on with Jesus as He's coming down the mountain. People are amazed that perhaps there's still some physical residual effects from the transfiguration, but ultimately the text does not make that clear to us. But they are interested in seeing Jesus, and they, they do come to Him, and they do want to interact with Him. But Jesus, He sees that there's some disagreement going on between the disciples and with the scribes, and so He wants to know what is the argument. And so He asks them, what are you arguing about with them? And the reply is interesting because at first, it doesn't seem to answer the question. Why are the disciples arguing with the scribes? A seemingly random person from the crowd comes forward and says to Jesus, Hey, I brought you my son. He's been demonized. He cannot speak because of this demon. And the text says it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth. And the ESV says he becomes rigid. Or he stiffens out. Some other translations say he becomes paralyzed. This demonic oppression that is occurring with this young individual is it's a very violent oppression. That word for throws him down, it's a very violent word. The NESB tries to capture the concept of the violence of this word by translating it. It slams him to the ground. It's a forceful thing. There's, there's, there's harm intended from this demonic activity. And three times in this text, there's, there's going to be almost a repetition or an expansion upon all the things that are going on with, with, the, with this demonic oppression of this young individual. There's, there's this initial description, and then when Jesus is going to interact with this young boy, it's going to do more things to him, and the Father is going to, again, explain more things that had gone on in this child's life communicating that this child has been severely afflicted by this evil spirit, that this is not just a, you know, just a simple case of you know, just your run-of-the-mill everyday you know, demonization as we have seen in other passages. No, this is a severe case. And then the father explains what is almost certainly the source of the conflict and the argument between the disciples and the scribes. In the second half of verse 18, the Father says, I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. The, the word that's translated by I asked in this text by the ESV, it, it's actually not a word for asking, it's a word for telling. 
I said it to your disciples, I, I communicated to the, your disciples that they should cast this demon out. The NASB puts it, I almost wonder if the NASB, NASB puts it almost a little too strong. The NASB says, I told your disciples to drive it out, almost like it's a command. And I'm not sure that that's quite as the idea there. I think the idea is, no, I, I said to your disciples that they should drive it out. It's almost like I'm, I'm coming to you, I'm telling you about what's going on with my boy so that you would see this and then drive the demon out. So I don't think it's exactly a demand on the part of the father, but the language seems to communicate that it's more than just a simple request or an entreaty. There's, there's almost a desperation in the voice of the father here. I, I brought my son to you, and I just want you so badly to drive this demon out. But they were not able. They didn't seem to have the capability. Though they tried, they were unsuccessful on account of inability. That was certainly the, con- the source of the conflicts with the scribes. As you can imagine, the scribes, they've been Jesus' biggest adversaries throughout this gospel. They have, uh, at, at different points, they have been confronting Jesus, challenging Him on His authority, challenging Him on His teaching. Uh, all these conflicts that we have seen, already seeking to put Jesus to death. And so they would have loved nothing more than to throw this into the face of the disciples. Ah, you don't have the power that you claim to have. You said you could cast this demon out, and yet here this boy is still afflicted just as always. Your authority is lacking. And that's a significant issue. It's a significant conflict because uh, with the authority, when you have the rabbi and the, and the disciples, the masters and the disciples, there's, there's the idea there that whatever the disciple is doing, he's doing on the authority of the master. He's doing on the authority of the rabbi. Everything that he's teaching, he's teaching on the authority of the master. And so if the disciples are here and they are failing to cast out demons, that's a reflection of the lack of their own authority, which is ultimately a reflection upon the authority of Jesus Christ. So the scribes, they're, they're seizing upon this and they're excited about this because, hey, 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 you can't cast this demon out. That means that Jesus is not who he is pretending to be. He's not actually the Messiah. He can't even cast, his disciples can't even cast out a demon. I think there is a, a lesson here. The enemy loves to discourage and discredit us by throwing our failures in our faces But there is, there is the problem as it is described within this text. The disciples failed to do what was asked of them, and now their father is distraught. The scribes and the disciples, they're arguing. The disciples are probably, probably pretty confused themselves. I mean, if we go back to chapter 6, we have seen that the disciples, they were, they were commissioned out, and they were being successful in casting out demons themselves. They were healing individuals. They were casting out demons. They were doing all of these things, and yet here now, they tried to do the same thing again, and it's not happening. Can you imagine the bewilderment that was, would have been going on within the hearts of the disciples, confusion over what's going on in front of them. They don't know what is going on. They don't know what the deal is. The scribes, they're, again, they're probably giddy. Finally, something to pounce on. And so Jesus looks around at that scene and 
you just picture it, uh, the, just the chaos that's going on, all the arguing and things that's happening there. And it seems like Jesus has just about had enough of, what's, of the crowd here. Look at verse 19. And He answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring Him to me. One of the questions that might need to be answered from this verse is, okay, who is Jesus directing these words to? Who, who is He talking to when He says these words? Is, are they directed to the disciples because of their, their failing to have sufficient faith for the exorcism? Is it directed toward the scribes because of their attack on the disciples, an attack of, which, again, is an attack upon Jesus and His authority as well? Is, it, is, it, is He speaking these words against the Father? Is it, is it against the whole crowd in general? Or maybe it's all of the above, everybody who is present there. Well, I do believe Mark's ambiguity is likely intentional and so that it would be understood to include all of the above. Jesus is looking around at the entire crowd and everything that's unfolding before Him, and He's saying, you faithless generation. This is a generation characterized by faithlessness. There's faithlessness on the part of the disciples, on the crowd, on the scribes, and even upon the father of the boy himself. And this issue of faith, this is really the, the central theme and the central question of this particular text. Faith. Who or what is your faith in? What we find from this is that crisis moments are exacerbated by a lack of faith. This is the whole issue right here. If it wasn't enough that the boy was demonized, the tensions are only heightened because of the lack of faith. The desperation in the voice of the Father, the conflict between the disciples and the scribes, things have escalated. And why? Because of a fundamental lack of faith in the Lord. Oh, faithless generation. Lack of faith has been an issue previously within the book of Mark, and we've seen this at, at different points. In chapter 6, Jesus was in His hometown, and the text says that He did very little miracles there. Why? Because of their unbelief, because of their lack of faith. They doubted. They did not come to Christ in humility and faith looking for deliverance, but rather with an attitude that says, oh yeah, you're the Messiah, are you? Well, okay, show me. Prove it. The Pharisees, they come before Jesus and say, what sign do you show us from heaven? This is back in chapter 8. What sign do you show us that you are truly who you say that you are? So Jesus does very little for those individuals. He does very little in His hometown. He doesn't owe anyone anything. Their lack of faith was a primary reason for Jesus' lack of miracles. Not because He wasn't powerful enough to overcome that, but because they are in rejection of Him. And so, no sign is given to the Pharisees either. But here, in this text, things are a little bit different. 
with his hometown, the, the, the crowd is, is skeptical of Jesus, and they look at him and say, who do you, who, who do you think you are? And, and with the Pharisees, they, they come before him and say, what sign do you show us? It's almost as if they're, they're expecting that Jesus has to prove himself to them. But here the issue of the lack of faith is a little bit different. In a little while, we're going to see that the disciples, they're going to ask why we couldn't cast it out. Why couldn't we cast that demon out? And Jesus will give an explanation for that. We'll see that in a moment. But for now, just note that the issue of the lack of faith is what Jesus identifies as the problem. And then we will see how the Father responds to Jesus' words to him. You know, here in the year 2023, we don't often see the overt demonic oppression in our day-to-day lives that this man saw with his son. We do experience a variety of things within our lives. We do experience other hardships, other trouble, other crisis moments. And in those moments, how do we respond? Is in our crisis moments when our faith is tested the most. It's easy to have faith when everything's going well, right? It's easy to say, yeah, God is good when everything is, is going along fine, when the bills are paid, the, the, the pantry is stocked, when the, we got a clean bill of health and there's just everyone smiling. All those things are going well. It's easy to say, oh, yes, the Lord is good. The Lord is kind. But what about when the crisis arrives? That's when faith is tested. And a lack of faith only increases the crisis. And the devil knows this. He knows this about us, that we are tested the most, we are tried the most in these moments. He seeks to use those moments to attempt to undermine our faith and to tempt us to despair. We sang that song earlier, Before the Throne of God Above, that second verse begins when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. This is one of the tactics of the evil one. He wants to undermine our faith, to throw our failures in our face, to weaken our trust in the Lord. And and if we give in to that temptation, it only makes the crisis moment worse for us. Because then we're not only dealing with the crisis itself, but we're also adding anxiety or fear or despair or anger or whatever other responses that arise from a lack of faith. And most importantly, we cut ourselves off from the one who is able to do something about it. We cut ourselves off from the one who has the power to remove us from the crisis. We cut ourselves off from the one who can sustain us and strengthen us to endure through the crisis. Will you fight for your faith? The father of the demonized boy, he did fight for his faith. Let's continue reading with our text. Jesus instructs him, bring him to me. In verse 20, they brought the boy to him. The spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, fell to the ground, rolled about foaming at the mouth. The things that were described as happening, it it actually was happening there in the moments. So Jesus asked the father how long it's been happening. And that only serves to highlight the severity of the condition. He says, oh, it's been happening from childhood, and it's not only these things that happen, but it seems that this demon has it out for this child and wants to destroy the child. It casts him into the fire. It casts him into the water. That demon had its way. It would kill 
the child and destroy him. And so once again, we can hear the desperation in the father's voice. He says in verse 22, at the end of verse 22, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can do anything, is there anything that you can do? Jesus almost seems incredulous at that response. It's like, what, what do you mean, if you can? If you can, yes, of course. All things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus, Jesus challenges this man on his faith. He challenges him. Do you have faith in this moment? There's a few things that we need to understand about this challenge from Jesus to uh, this individual. I do not believe that we should understand this challenge to, to mean that. That God will do whatever you want if you simply have enough faith. If you can just muster up enough faith, God will do anything in the world for you. There's a whole bad theology that's in the world that's centered around this concept that if there's something bad going on in your life, well, that's because you don't have enough faith and it's your fault. Because if you had enough faith, God would fix that for you. It's called prosperity theology, and it is garbage. It is not what this is teaching. The question is not about if you have enough faith. The question is, who are you trusting in? It's the object of our faith that is at question Jesus is going to say later on, if you have just the faith of a mustard seed, it doesn't take a lot of faith, but it's about the person in whom that faith is placed. Our faith should be in the God who can do all things. Again, it's the issue of faith that's highlighted by our Lord. He says, oh, faithless generation, and He challenges on and says, if you have faith, all things are possible. And the whole language of if, if you can do anything, that reveals the lack of faith that's within this individual's heart. Because the father of this boy, he's not only having a crisis in life with this boy, but he's having a crisis of faith. The disciples were not able to cast this demon out. Is Jesus able? Your disciples were not able. Can you do this, Jesus? And so he responds to Jesus in response to the challenge in verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. In his crisis moment, in the midst of, in the, midst of the doubt, he asked the Lord, help my unbelief, strengthen my faith. In the midst of his doubt and admitted lack of faith, he had enough humility to seek greater faith from the Lord. Faith seeking humility, even in the midst of doubt, is honored by the Lord. How we respond to crises and, and a lack of faith are defining moments for us. Again, there are many who struggle with doubt. I don't think there's a, there's a person who's walked the face of this earth who has not at some point struggled with some level of doubt within their lives. 
It's an experience common to all. This week, I just this week I was online. I saw someone asking for prayer because they were really struggling with doubt in the face of the hardship they were experiencing, and they're looking at the world around them, and they see that the righteous are are suffering and the wicked are living in apparent prosperity. What is going on there? And he's struggling with his faith in the face of that. It's so easy for us to to look at what's going on in the world around us and and, and to take our eyes off of Christ and those doubts begin to set in. How do we respond in those moments, in those times? Again, this is not the first person who's experienced doubt in this gospel. I made reference to the people in Jesus' hometown. They doubted made reference to the Pharisees. They doubted. Everyone experiences doubt, but for some in their doubt, they may demand a sign from God to prove His existence or or some sign to prove His love or to prove something about His nature or His character or His power. If you're real, prove it. If you love me, do this for me. That is a, a doubt mingled with pride, as though God owes you anything. Again, the Pharisees, they asked for a sign to test the Lord, and Jesus says, I'm not going to give you a sign. I've been doing all of these miracles. There have been plenty of things for you to see. I'm not giving you something just because you demand it. No sign will be given to this generation, he says. But here, Jesus responds to the man. He says to the people in his hometown, okay, there's very little miracles that are going to be done here because of the lack of faith. He says to the Pharisees over there, look, okay, you're demanding a sign. I'm not going to give that to you. But over here, Jesus responds to the man. Why? What is the difference? This man wasn't coming with a prideful doubt that demanded a sign. He came with a faith-seeking humility Asking, humbly asking the Lord to strengthen his faith. He was fighting for faith. And this request of the Lord is so simple, yet so profound. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I've mentioned this already, but I just want to reiterate again, we can, as we consider this text, we might be tempted to, to conclude that if, it's, if we could just muster up enough faith that God will do what we want. And again, that's not what this text is after. It's not about how much faith, but the battle for faith and of the object of our faith. So often we want to have enough faith so that God will do what we want. And can God do what we want? Just Is He able to do those things? The answer is yes, right? Does, does all things, if we, want, we want God to remove us from our crisis moments, the, the, the things that we go through in life that are unpleasant, we don't like going through them. We want God to remove them from us, remove us from those moments. Is God able to do that? And the answer to that is yes. Yes, He is able to do that. All things are possible. So does all things include removing us from the crisis? Yes. 
Does all things include sustaining us through the crisis instead of taking it away? The answer to that is yes. If that's what the Lord would have for us, so often that's where the battle for faith rages. Lord, help my unbelief. Even in the midst of this hardship or whatever it is that I'm going through, help my unbelief. The battle for faith is not only that God can remove from the crisis, but that He can sustain us through it. I think of of James chapter 1 where it says that we should take... have joy in the midst of our trials, knowing that the testing of our faith has a sanctifying work within our life. And Hebrews chapter, uh, sorry, James chapter 1 verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's not a removal from the circumstances there, that's a, a steadfastness, that's a perseverance through it. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So often the battle for faith is not just that God would remove us from it, but that He would sustain us through it. Well, in this particular instance, in this text, Jesus honors this man's request for more faith, and He casts out the demon. Verse 25, and when Jesus saw a crowd come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. There's significant imagery within that. He he commands the demon to leave, never enter the boy again. He violently leaves the boy to the point where the boy appears dead. He's just lying there on the ground. And I think it's very possible that the demon actually really did kill that boy in that moment. I think it's very, very possible that that is what happened. And the reason for it is I concluded because of the language used in verse 27 where it says, Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. That's the exact same language that that was used when Jesus rose Jairus' daughter from the dead just a few chapters earlier. So the parallels there make us think, that okay, this boy actually was dead. That demon killed that boy. And yet, Jesus raises him up. And restores him. And incidentally, the parallels there with, with that, with Jairus' daughter, are pretty striking with not only the language of raising him up, but Jesus' challenge to Jairus was, was this. In, in chapter 5, he says, do not fear, only believe. Chapter 5, verse 36. Jesus raises this boy up, restores him to his father. Well, that doesn't conclude the section. There's one final concluding scene here. The disciples, they continue on, and, and when they have a, a private moment with Jesus, the disciples ask Him a question that I'm sure just absolutely had to be burning within their hearts. Or I'm sure this just would have had to be just turned around inside of them, like, oh, we couldn't do it, and Jesus did it. Like, what, what's, what gives here? What's going on? And they've just been waiting, waiting for this private moment to ask Him this question. It's got to be eating them alive. So they say in verse 28, why could we not cast it out? Why couldn't we do it? We cast out others. 
Right? It's not like this was the first demon that we encountered. That we have encountered others and we've been successful there. We, we've seen the power of God work through us. Why did not that happen here? Jesus' response is so crucial. Verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Jesus first says this kind as if to create a class of things, and I don't necessarily believe he's talking about just, just a, like there's a certain class of demons that are harder to encounter than others. I, I think it's a broader statement of this kind of crisis, this sort of situation cannot be accomplished, cannot be addressed by anything except by means of prayer. There are moments, there are things that are bigger than ourselves and cannot be, nothing can be done about them except through prayer. In Jesus' direction of them, His instructions for them, it, it's not just a statement about like a method or a procedure. Like as if, as if these disciples, well, if they had only just gone through this particular step, if they had only said the right words in the prayer, well, then that would have taken care of the situation. I don't believe that it's, it's about like an incantation of sorts. You know, back when... Um, Back when I was going down to the abortion clinic down in downtown Louisville and seeking to bring the gospel to the streets there, there would be these Catholic groups that would, would go about and they'd be praying the rosary constantly over and over again, muttering the same thing. It looked like they're just wandering around muttering these, these incantations. Is that what Jesus is after? You just say the right words? If you just, if you just do the right thing, that that's, that's what's going to accomplish the, ex, the, ex, the uh, exorcism? Oh, that's not what Jesus is after. It's interesting that Jesus says this to the disciples, but Jesus Himself, the text doesn't describe Jesus as praying to cast out the demon. He just did it. He just spoke the words and, and, it, and it happened. So why then did He say that only prayer can resolve these kinds of issues for the disciples? I think the answer to that question is this, it is that prayer directs our faith. Prayer directs our faith to the one who has the ability to do something about our issue. The disciples attempted to cast out the demon, but, but based on Jesus' response here, they couldn't do it because they did not pray, which is to say they did not do it because they were not being wholly reliant upon the Lord for the task. Prayer on a fundamental level is an expression of our faith and reliance upon the Lord. And when prayer is absent, faith may be lacking. So it seems that the disciples' trouble was because they, they had seen success in other places where other demons were, they were beginning to think a lot of themselves perhaps, saying, oh, look at this, look at this great power that I have. I can cast out demons. And so they began to be reliant upon their own power and ability rather than trusting in the Lord who has given them that authority. And thus they were not able to cast out the demon. What they lacked was faith that would have been expressed through the prayers that would have been offered to the Lord. Prayer directs 
our faith to God. Prayer forces us to come to terms with our own inability, that we have no power in ourselves to act. Prayer forces us to be reliant upon the Lord for only what He can do. Prayer directs our faith. Prayer, of course, is a fundamental discipline for all believers. Sometimes the concept of prayer gets thrown around flippantly as like a, like a cure-all to, cure to all of our problems. Hey, oh, well, you just pray about it. It'll be okay. Just, just, just pray about it. And sometimes that can sound trite and insufficient, like, okay, well, thanks a lot for your prayers. I, got, I still got an issue in front of me here, right? And yet, prayer is what God commands and desires from us. There are so many texts that speak to this reality. James 1.5 says, if any of you asks, lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. There's a promise to answer that prayer. Philippians 4.6 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. We are told to go to the Lord with our anxieties. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. We come to Him in humility and He will exalt you at the proper time. James 5, 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Why? Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Colossians 4, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in what? Prayer. And this is not all the places where we are directed and instructed to go to the Lord with our prayers. The Scriptures go on and on and on. Why are we constantly called to prayer? Why are we constantly directed to be looking unto our Lord in prayer? Because it is through prayer that we direct our faith and our reliance off of ourselves and upon the God who is able, upon unto the one who is able to meet us in our need, to strengthen us in the moment, to, to remove the crisis or strengthen us through the crisis. Prayer directs our faith. Of course, the place where humility begins is at the cross of Christ where we realize that we are sinners deserving of the wrath of God to be poured out upon us, that we cannot save ourselves. It is only through faith and the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross that we can be saved. That's where faith begins. That's where faith begins. That's the gospel of Christ that Jesus died for us. And that by trusting in Him and Him alone recognizing that we cannot be good enough, that we cannot earn a favor, we cannot earn grace from God, that we must be wholly reliant upon Him and His sacrifice for us. That's where faith begins. And from there, we battle for faith every day. 
when the crisis moments hits, when our faith is tested, we can go to our Father and humbly ask Him to increase our faith. And that prayer itself is an expression of that faith. It is through the prayer that our faith is strengthened. And God, who promises that He is accomplishing His purposes through the prayers of His people, will do and accomplish His purpose within your life. That prayer for faith will be honored for the one who humbly seeks the Lord. And He will meet you in your need, strengthening you for the trial that is at hand. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Father, thank You so much for this text of Scripture. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for this direction in this text, Lord, that we need to be coming before You, that we need to be looking to You and for Your strength and not seeking to accomplish all the things of this life in my own strength. Lord, we are weak and frail. Often, Lord, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We need Your strength. We need Your enablement. We need Your power within our lives. Thank You that through the Holy Spirit, You strengthen us so that even as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, You are the one who works within us both to will and to do for Your good pleasure. Thank You, Lord, that though we are often faithless, You are ever faithful, for You cannot deny Yourself. May we be a people who looks unto You and comes to You, seeking that You would increase our faith. I pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.